We're in a series on the implications of the Great Tribulation. And this has led us into dealing with the philosophical problem that the existence of evil creates. But before we started working on this challenging issue, first we took on the worldviews that claim that evil doesn't actually exist, or that good and evil are always depending upon your perspective. So we spent several sessions, sessions 60, 61, and 63, dealing with atheism, relativism, pantheism, and dualism, and also then last week, philosophical naturalism. Each of these, in their own way, deny the ex existence of absolute truth, and thus they deny the existence of objective morality right and wrong. And that, that, uh, what we found was no matter how hard they try and no matter what angle they take finally, every philosophical system that attempts to get rid of the reality of the existence of truth and of the existence of the moral law always ends up, every one of those worldviews always ends up collapsing in a host of contradictory, self-defeating, flimsy arguments. Every one of them fail. But then I brought up the problem that still faces those who do believe in evil. And last week, I acknowledged that believers can't just smugly point out that the other worldviews fail to answer the challenge presented by the problem of evil. Showing that someone else's worldview is untenable doesn't prove that our worldview is right. In fact, what it does is it actually places now the problem of evil since we believe, and it is obvious that evil truly exists, it places this issue squarely in Christianity's court. The honest observer who acknowledges that the other worldviews falter when confronted with the problem of evil now turns to the biblical believer, anyone who's just looking on and has no axe to grind, and they might say, okay, so evil does exist. Right and wrong do exist. There is objective truth, but now, since you believe in a God who is absolutely good and absolutely sovereign, you believe in a God who's all-powerful and all-holy and all-loving, then why is there so much evil in the world? Why would your God allow atrocities and calamity, and why do evil people so often flourish and succeed? If God is good and all-powerful, then why does he allow evil people to inflict so much suffering on the innocent? So to highlight the challenge that faces the biblical worldview when confronted with the evil in the world, I'd like us to return to the topic that got us into this problem in the first place, the Great Tribulation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, and let's look together at the first nine verses, this being placed right after the abomination of desolation at the beginning of the second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Verse 1, And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of, of the wrath of God, notice, the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the angel, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you, 
you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them the blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given for it to scorch men with fire. And the men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. This passage, this passage describes what will happen on the earth at the right after the midpoint of the tribulation, at the beginning of what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And notice how clear it is that the loathsome sores and the blood-filled oceans and the scorching fire are God's wrath. And so it's very clear that these calamities are directly from God. And this leads to some troublesome questions for believers. One of the clear implications of the Great is the question of whether is God is the cause of evil. And over the years, I've been asked a lot of questions about this. Let me give you some examples of the questions I've been asked as a Bible teacher. Does God, this is in your notes, does God have the capacity to choose evil? If God is completely sovereign, then was it his will for humanity to fall into sin? If God is completely sovereign, in essence, is he actually the source of evil? And in our next two sessions, we're going to take these questions on directly. So here's the essence of what we'll deal with. Is God the cause of evil? Now, I suspect that some of you are going to be stunned by the answer to this question. Within the church, there are two schools of thought on this issue. When asked whether God is the cause of evil, some Christians say no, and some say yes. And here's what they say. Here's your first blanks. Write it in. The theological traditions that say that God is the cause of evil believe, here's your blanks, God willed and caused sin and evil. And the next, the other school of thought, the theological tradition that says that God is not the cause of evil, believe, here's your blanks, God allowed for the possibility of evil. So God allowed for the possibility of evil by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices and giving them the ability to rebel against his will. And so, to unpack this dramatic difference in the answer to whether God is the cause of evil, we need to know some of the things that the two most common theological perspectives say. They differ dramatically in their beliefs about how God interacts with humanity and whether humans have the freedom to make meaningful moral choices to either obey God or to disobey Him, to follow His will or to oppose it. These theological systems were founded about 500 years ago by John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. And as we go through this, I'll use the term Reformed Theology, or the interchangeable term Classical Calvinism, for the theological system that was founded by John Calvin. I'll use the term Arminianism 
to refer to the theology founded by Jacobus Arminius just a few decades later. And to begin, I'll use the outline of the Reformed tradition to give us a basic understanding of Calvinism and Arminianism. Here are the five points of Reformed theology, the so-called tulip, and you can see you've got uh, places and spaces notes there, and then the Arminian uh, perspective of each. So let's start with the first, the T of the tulip, and here's your blank. The T of the tulip is <clears throat> total, total depravity, total depravity. And here are the blanks that Reformed theology says, basically the definition. At the fall, the image of God was destroyed resulting in the complete inability of, for humans to respond to God in any way. Let me read that again. At the fall, the image of God was destroyed, resulting in the complete inability for humans to respond to God in any way. That's the Reformed theological concept of the T, total depravity. And here's the Arminian theology on the concept of total depravity. Here it is. I'll read it twice because there's a bunch of blanks. Write it in. Total depravity isn't the inability to respond to God. It's the universal tendency to be unwilling to respond. Notice the issue of the will, the decision. Unwilling to respond, but God's prevenient grace has given every person the ability to respond to his offer of forgiveness. So now let's read that straight through, just in case you missed any blanks. Total depravity isn't the inability to respond to God. It's the universal tendency to be unwilling to respond. But God's prevenient grace has given every person the ability to respond to his offer of forgiveness. So that's the T, total depravity. Next is the U. Here's your blank. The U is unconditional, unconditional election. The U in the tulip is unconditional election. And so here's the perspective of Reformed theology. Here's your blanks. This actually comes straight out of the Westminster Confession, which is a classical statement of, uh, of Calvinism. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his own glory, a very interesting uh, aspect that they strongly affirm, the manifestation of his own glory. Some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. In other words, from before the foundations of the earth, God decided who would be saved and who would be lost, who would spend eternity with him and who would be separated by him. And it's God's call by decree. Uh, and here's the concept of Arminian theology when it comes to election. Election, here's your blanks. Elections, election is not a position, but a responsibility. Got that? Election is not a position, but a responsibility. And God calls the elect to help him take the universal message of the gospel to every person. If you go back to our mini-series on Israel, you'll see the reason why God chose Israel wasn't because every Israelite was saved or non-Israelites weren't saved, because there were plenty of Israelites who weren't saved and plenty of non-Israelites, non-elect, who were personally saved. No, the issue for calling out a, 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 an elect people is so God can use that people to help him save his world. Okay, so the next 
got total depravity, unconditional election. And next is the L, which is limited, limited atonement. Limited atonement. And this is very simple. In the from the perspective of Calvinism, Reformed theology, Christ only shed his blood for the elect. Christ shed his blood only for those whom the Father had unconditionally elected. In Arminian theology, here's your blank, Christ shed his blood for every human who was ever conceived. Now, obviously, we're not going into this now because that's not the purpose, but to help us understand these two perspectives on whether God cause, is the cause of evil or not. Um, okay, and next comes uh, the I. So we've got the total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and now comes the I in the tulip, which is irresistible, irresistible, irresistible grace. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace. So here is the Reformed theology's perspective on irresistible grace. Reformed theology, here's your blank. God, by his sovereign mandate, saves all whom he elected, and they cannot resist this salvation. God, by his Sovereign mandate saves all whom he elected, and they cannot resist this salvation. And in Arminian theology, again, I'll read this twice because it's, it's long. Uh, God does not want anyone, here's your blank, God not want anyone to perish, for every, but for everyone to come to repentance. Of course, you can see that coming straight out of, uh, of 2 Peter chapter 3. So, he offers grace to all, but he also gave humans the ability to resist his universal offer of forgiveness. Notice, you see the limited atonement playing out here in Reformed theology, and you see the universal atonement offering the atonement to all played out in Arminian theology. So here it is again, uh, a straight read-through. God does not want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. So he offers saving grace to all, but he also gave humans the ability to resist his universal offer of forgiveness. And finally, so we've done the total depravity, un, uh, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace. Now we come to the P in the tulip, which is perseverance, perseverance, perseverance of the saints. Now don't get this confused with eternal security because it's very very different than most evangelicals think about eternal security. Uh, what this is, is very, very specific, and it's very specific to, to Reformed theology. Uh, here's your blanks there for Reformed, for Reformed theology. The basis for assurance of salvation is found only in being one of the elect. Notice that. The elect will be saved and cannot be lost. Irresistibly, they will be. And they will persevere to the end because God has elected them. They were atoned for in the limited atonement. They were irresistibly saved, something they cannot resist by their own will because they don't have free moral choice in, this, in the system of Reformed theology. Um, and so notice they, the, the entire concept of the uh, person uh, being secure, being assured, is that they are elect. 
and that has various aspects of it that are both strengths and very consequential uh, complications. Maybe in the distant future we'll, we'll actually do a, a series on, on these two main uh, theologies in Protestantism about salvation. But here's Arminian theology on the concept of perseverance of the saints. And you can see it's, it comes really out of two, uh, directly out of two passages of Scripture. The basis for assurance of salvation is found in God's promise that he who began a good work in the true believer will be faithful to complete it. As, notice, this goes with Arminian theology, as the sheep hear his voice, now right out of John 10, as the sheep hear his voice and follow him. So notice the out of the Pauline letters and then out of the gospel in John chapter 10. Let me read it straight through now. The basis for assurance in Arminian understanding of, of uh, salvation, the basis for assurance of salvation is found in God's promise that he who began a good work in the true believer will be faithful to complete it as his sheep hear his voice and follow him. So notice there God's provenient grace giving the ability of the person to stop resisting and to respond to God's forgiveness and to respond to the Holy Spirit who then lives his righteousness in them and they follow Christ in Christ-likeness. Not their own, has nothing to do with following the law, has everything to do with being transformed by the infilling of the Holy Spirit and they actually follow him. So one of the most Fundamental differences between Calvinism and Arminianism is the theology of understanding God's sovereignty. And you can see how, how dramatically this shows up in the tulip. Notice here's from Reformed Theology. I know we have a lot of blanks tonight, um, but I want you to have this, and I, I want to make sure we're all tracking together. So here comes your blank, blanks from Reformed Theology. God's sovereignty allows for no human freedom or choice. There's your first two blanks. No human freedom or choice. Because every detail of every thought and every action is predetermined and controlled by God. So let's look at the flow of that sentence again. God's sovereignty allows for no human freedom or choice because every detail of every thought and every action is predetermined and controlled by God. So when a Calvinist says, God is absolutely sovereign. We'll hear it straight out of the mouths of, of many Calvinist theologians uh, tonight. Uh, and you have that in your notes so you don't have to go looking for these quotes. But notice that the concept of sovereignty there is God absolutely controls every single, every single thought, every th single deed, every action. And um, Arminian theology also agrees that God is absolutely sovereign over history. But notice... There's a, the interpretation of what that absolute sovereignty means is different. In God's absolute sovereignty, here's your blanks, he has chosen to be interactive with humans as he allows meaningful choices, while never surrendering the clear biblical doctrine that his purposes will be established. Okay, ready? Let's read that again. In God's absolute sovereignty, so both believe in absolute sovereignty. It's, 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 not, it's a straw man for a Reformed theologian to say to an Arminian theologian, you don't believe in, God, in sovereignty because you don't believe in my interpretation uh, of Scripture on sovereignty. But this is what the Arminian believes. In God's absolute sovereignty, he has chosen to be interactive with humans as he allows meaningful choices while never surrendering the clear biblical doctrine 
that his purposes will be established. So in both cases, God's absolute sovereignty is affirmed. But in the Arminian view, his sovereignty is expressed by his purposes being established, even when people choose to reject his will. And as we now start to unpack tonight's question, it's appropriate for me to disclose that I believe and espouse the Arminian view. If you're, if you're a Calvinist, don't be dismayed. I'm the kind of teacher, I'm an academic physician, so I've been in academia my entire life where you tug and pull and question and, and, and everybody always looks on everybody else's thought as a, with a jaundiced eye and everyone always has questions. That I'm very comfortable with that. So I'm the kind of teacher that's comfortable discussing biblical issues with anyone and everyone. And I won't ever imply that the people who differ on matters of classical theology, like the ones that we're talking about now, that somehow they have a lower view of Scripture just because they have a different view than, than mine, or that they aren't pursuing the truth of God's Word. You'll, you'll never find me doing that. And another important point for me to make before we start on this is that I won't create a false straw man of other people's views and then debunk the straw man. That happens all the time. It, you see it all, actually, you see it on the news and in politics all the time now. Um, rather, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I've carefully studied their views. So I, although I'm from the Arminian perspective, I have carefully, I, I probably have read way more Calvinists even than Arminian theologians. And I'll include the teachings of Reformed theologians directly from their own writings. In other words, I'll let the Calvinists speak for themselves and not set up a false straw man that then is easy to debunk because I'm not really saying what they actually teach. So with this background, now we're ready to begin to deal with the question of whether God is the cause of evil. And we'll do this by looking at the origin of evil and the implications. You can see there's a large uh, outline for you. The origin of evil and the implications of reformed understanding of God's sovereignty. Implication number one, now that you know what reformed theology believes and how they talk about God's sovereignty, implication number one, here's your blank. Since God is the cause of everything, and since everything God wills comes to pass. So let's make sure we understand that. Since God is the cause of everything from the Calvinist perspective, and since everything God wills comes to pass, then God isn't just the author of good. He must also be the author of evil. It's a direct implication, and you're, as you're going to see, it's not just an implication, it's what they teach. So what may surprise some of, of you who are watching is that the Reformed theological tradition unblushingly holds this view. In his book, Almighty Overall, R.C. Sproul, a very, very world-famous uh, Calvinist theologian, he makes this bold announcement. Here's your blanks. Write it in. God wills all things that come to pass. God wills all things that come to pass. God created sin, just as clear as can be, because God, everything that happens is by God's decree. Now, now, why would he say something like this? And here's the key. That's why we started with the theology early so that you'd understand this, because the Reformed view of sovereignty demands that God causes everything. Therefore, from this point of view, if God weren't the cause of human sin, then people would be acting independently of God by an act of their own will. And in this view, in the view of the Calvinists, humans are absolutely incapable of acting independently from God's decree, God's absolute control, God's will. But how could it be God's will for humans to break his law? 
This, of course, is a quandary for Reformed theology. And yet, Reformed theologians teach this explicitly. Look at uh, these series. I've put this in here so you don't have to go looking for them. And again, so you'll see I'm not, I'm not putting words in their mouths. Look at uh, Edwin Palmer, another well-known uh, Calvinist theologian. Although sin and unbelief are contrary to what God commands, he has included them in his sovereign decree and has ordained that sin and unbelief would come to pass. God is holy and hates sin, and yet he not only passively permits sin, he also decrees that sin shall be. And look at this from Lorraine Bettner, the well-known French uh, 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 theologian uh, of the Calvinist persuasion. Even the fall of Adam and through him the fall of the human race was not by chance or accident, but was ordained by the secret counsels of God. And back to Edwin Palmer, look at this statement. It is essential that we establish the biblical concept of the foreordination, the foreordination, the predestination, which is a synonym, the foreordination of sin. God ordains sin. And notice the tense. It's very specific here. It's God ordains. This is the present uh, 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 of the verb. He's still ordaining sin, and that means, what that means is that every sin that you commit is ordained and mandated by God's will. God makes you do it by his decree. Now, this concept is fundamental to the Reformed uh, understanding of the origin of evil because their interpretation of God's sovereignty. Look at this again from Edwin, Edwin Palmer. Look at this quote. All things that happen in all the world at any time and in all history, both good and evil, come to pass because God ordained them. Every sin, the fall of the devil from heaven, the fall of Adam, and every evil thought, word, and deed in all of history is included in the eternal decree of our holy God. Sin is not only foreknown by God, it is foreordained, or again, the synonym, predestined. It is foreordained by God. Now, having heard the recurrent affirmation by these theologians that from the Calvinist perspective, God is the ordainer and the cause of all that occurs, even sin and evil, I want us to look at just one passage of Scripture that is made absurd. It's made to be absurd, this passage, as you'll see, if this concept is true. Look with me, and the text is there in your notes to make it easy from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, it shall be if you, notice the if, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Notice the condition and the responsiveness and the choice that's inherent to the, all of the language of this text. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you come out, go out. But now, look, we skip down to the second half of Deuteronomy 28, and things get ugly because it says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. 
Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Notice the clear choice, branch point, if this, then that, but if you do this, then that. Notice how clearly the Lord places the choice of obedience and disobedience before his people. This text is only one of hundreds of such passages in the scripture that establish a clear biblical doctrine. Here's your notes, write it in. God isn't the cause of sin. God isn't the cause of sin. Rather, he implores people to follow his ways and warns them that they will destroy themselves if they choose to disobey. Look at this again. God isn't the cause of sin. Rather, he implores people to follow his ways and warns them that they will destroy themselves if they choose to disobey. Working on the implications now of the reformed view of God's sovereignty, that he, everything that happens is all decreed by God, both good and evil. Implication number two, God isn't just the cause of the concept of evil. He's the cause of personal evil. And here's where we transition from just the theory or the theology to what this actually means in real life. Evil as an intellectual concept is one aspect of the discussion of the problem of evil. Of course, the theology, the philosophy, and the intellectual aspects of it are complex and challenging. But the Reformed theology even speaks to our personal sins as well. So listen again to Edwin Palmer, what he says. Here it is in your notes. All things are ordained by God, including sin and unbelief. And from Lawrence Vance. Again, all of these are well-known and, and uh, widely authored uh, theologians uh, from the Reformed uh, tradition. Sin is actually part of God's secret will. This is something that you'll find over and over in their writings that there's a, a, God, a, a kind of a will of God's desire that's articulated in the scripture, but he also has the secret will. That's why he, that, that's how they, they say, he can say things like he wishes that all would come to repentance and none would be lost. And yet in his secret will, he's chosen this small sliver who he has elected and only they are, are the ones that he, in his secret will that he really wants to be saved. So this concept, sin is actually part of God's secret will. This should come as no surprise in light of the reform concept of God's all-encompassing decree. So notice Dr. Vance is just simply saying, hey, God, God's decree encompasses everything, about everything, about everything, about all of history, in every place, by every person. And there, therefore, in actually even in organic matter, as we'll see in some of the, some of the quotes. Um, so, of course, God has decreed sin is really the concept. And then look at Edmund Palmer again. God decides all that is to happen in the entire universe. God is in back of everything. He causes all things to happen that do happen. He has foreordained everything after the counsel of his will. Now, this is a fascinating, look at how detailed this concept is. Here's the, he's foreordained everything after the counsel of his will, and now comes his list. The moving of a finger, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even every sin. Notice there is not a molecule that moves at any time in history in the universe that God isn't actually, by his decree, controlling its absolute movement. 
So look at what it says again. He causes all things to happen that do happen. He foreordained everything after the counsel of his will. The moving of a finger, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even every sin. So within this theological construct, humans aren't even willing accomplices to the sins that they commit. Rather, think about it. God himself holds people in bondage to sin by his own sovereign design. But here's the problem with this view. Repeatedly, the word announces that it's God's desire that people would turn from sin. Scripture explicitly states that God has no interest in punishing people. He desires that they would turn from sin and become a new creation. The entire the whole book of Colossians is about you're becoming a new creation. The concept is, no, that's who you were. That's where you were going. And now, because you've responded, God wants you going this way. And if you'll continue to respond, he will make you a new creation from the old dead person that you were spiritually. Um, so God's will... Uh, is that people would turn from sin, and it's stated spectacularly in Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at it here. It's, it's in your, t uh, your notes again. Now, as for you, Ezekiel chapter 33, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. And look what happened, what God says to the people. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to and warn the wicked man from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Notice how clearly. If I tell you to say, thus says the Lord to the people, Ezekiel, you better say it. Because if you don't, and you don't warn them, then their blood for their sin will be on your hands. But if, notice the if again, this conditional but if you, on your part, warn a wicked man, in other words, if you're a true prophet, Ezekiel, if you give them every word that I give you, the good news and the bad news, but if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way and he does not turn away from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now notice, this is, listen to God plead. This is the absolutely sovereign God, but look at him pleading. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked man turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? This passage simply couldn't come from a God who has predestined these people to live in the very sin that he's pleading them for them to stop doing. And how can he possibly keep a straight face when he says that he doesn't desire the death of the wicked when in fact that's the very thing that he has decreed will take place no matter what anyone does? In other words, he punishes them for the very actions that he forces them to do by his will and decree. Again, we're looking at this specific way that Reformed theology looks at absolute sovereignty because this is key to the question of does God cause evil or not? Did evil come from God allowing it, as the Arminian view says? Implication number three of the Reformed view, the enormity of worldwide suffering and the perpetration of massive atrocities are all according to God's plan.
That is stunning to think about, but there it is. Another huge implication of the Reformed view of God's sovereignty is that the untold suffering that has gone on throughout history has happened by the will of God. So the fact that tens of thousands of children die of starvation in the world every day is because it was decreed by God. It's his sovereign will. In addition, the wickedness and greed and selfishness that create such suffering are also part of God's sovereign, perfect design. So here's where it gets really sticky for the Reformed view. When someone is raped, it's by God's decree. When someone is murdered, it couldn't have been any other way. God made them do it. When Hitler perpetrated the Holocaust, he was actually carrying out God's foreordained plan. And he couldn't have done anything else because the Holocaust was God's will. Because everything that happens is God's will, foreordained, and by his sovereign decree. And what's amazing is when you present such statements to the Reformed theologians, they say things like this. Look from Dr. Arthur Pink. Again, all of these are well-known, established, great Calvinist theologians. Notice, here's the statement. In his omniscience and foreknowledge, not only did God see Adam eating of the forbidden fruit, he decreed beforehand that he would do so. And back to R.C. Sproul. This is so clear and so explicit of the Calvinist belief. I want you to fill the blanks in. Look at this. God wills all things that come to pass. God desired for man to fall into sin. God created sin. So if the Calvinist view of the origin of evil is true, then the dark state that our world is in is exactly what God has willed it to be. It's going precisely according to his decree and plan. He wanted it to be exactly this way. So now that we've seen what Reformed theologians teach about these issues, what's the alternative for understanding the origin of evil? What's the other view in classical Protestant Christian theological understanding? It, it, it comes, I'll, I'll answer it as a key question. Notice here, here's your key question. Is God, if God is all-powerful, how could sin have entered history without him willing it? If God's all-powerful, notice this apparent conundrum is resolved by understanding two things. Number one, write, your, write it in, there's a vast difference between what God causes and what he allows. There's a vast difference between what God causes and what he allows. Could he cause everything? Of course he could. He's absolutely sovereign. But he has chosen by his own sovereignty to withhold some of his authority that he has so that it allows, from the Arminian view, allows a response by people because of his pervenient grace. Not because of anything in us, but because of the image of God that he has retained in us by his grace. So notice there's a vast difference between what God causes and what he allows. There's a difference between what God desires and what he permits his creatures to do in rebellion against his will. For a sovereign God to give humans meaningful moral choices and allow them to refuse to follow his will is entirely different than God being the one who caused the rebellion to happen. And so here's number two, the answer in answer to the key question. Number two, here's your blanks. While God does not cause sin and rebellion, he can use 
sin and rebellion for his purposes. And this is how God keeps from being held hostage to the fact that he gave humans the ability to reject his will. Not in everything. You can't reject his will. Uh, you fall off a 500-foot cliff, you're always going to follow his natural law, and you're always going to, <laughs> to accelerate at 32 seconds per, uh, feet per second per second, and you're going to die at the bottom of that fall. But there are in the spiritual realm places where God has said, I will allow you to, to reject my will. And amazingly, despite our desire to have our own way and to function autonomously from him, God set up the creation in such a way that even humanity's rebellion can be used for his purposes. Now that is sovereignty. Think of that. Not controlling every single thing like a robot since he has the power and he can do it. Not just automata who can do nothing other than what he has decreed, but he allows this freedom from the Arminian view to say, no, I'm not going to follow you, God. Just like we said, you see the second half of Deuteronomy 28. But if you say, I'm not going to obey, this is what will happen. But notice, even though we can say no to his will in certain areas, he will still bring about his purposes, an incredible view of high sovereignty. So in several weeks, we'll deal with this issue in detail. But as an example, let's consider the issue of discipline and punishment. When a parent punishes a child for disobedience, it can either be out of love for the child and the desire that they will reach their full potential, or the punishment can come from anger, in which case the parent is acting wickedly. Even if the child deserves the punishment, if, if you're acting from anger, that is, that's wrong. That is sinful anger in God's view and from the biblical perspective. See, the actual act of punishment may be identical in both cases, the loving discipline and the angry discipline. But the determination of whether it's good or evil comes from the parent's motivation for the punishment. Because they're mad and they're angry and it's about them and they've lost control or because they love the child and they want the child to reach all of the potential that God has made for them. In the very same way, in the Old Testament, you'll remember that God often used the evil intent of Israel's enemies to punish and discipline his people. In this case, he was using the evil of a pagan nation to bring about good for his children. Isn't that amazing? What a view of sovereignty. He was being a good father, even though the enemies were wicked in their intentions. So notice how what Satan meant for evil, God could use for good. Evil nations bringing hardship and pain on Israel, God was using for his purposes to discipline them and return them to himself. So this show how, shows how God can use evil without causing evil. In implication number four, this uh, reformed view of the absolute sovereignty of God, implication number four, here's your blanks. If God wills and causes evil, if God wills and causes evil, then it brings up the entirely reasonable question of whether God is trustworthy. Notice the implications about that God that come from reformed theology. Here's Write these in, these, these three points. Look at this. Notice, here's your blank. 
The infinitely holy God ruined his own perfect creation, right? By decreeing evil, decreeing sin, decreeing unbelief. The infinitely holy God ruined his own perfect creation intentionally by his decree. The next one, God forced Lucifer to rebel and then he condemned him for being his enemy. Notice, Lucifer couldn't have done anything else. It was foreordained. It was decreed. God forced Lucifer to rebel, and then he condemned him for being his enemy. And then finally, God caused humans to sin so that he could forgive a few of them. Because remember, the way is narrow. that leads to life. So if he foreordained, if he made all of, it, all of that decision, notice he caused humans to sin so he could forgive a few of them and condemn the rest. And in this scenario, the cross isn't a response by God to rescue humanity from our rebellion. It's actually a partial cleanup plan for a rebellion that God created himself. And when these points are brought up, the Calvinist answer is very interestingly. You'll see this in the writings all the time. He did this, God did this for his own good pleasure and to bring glory to himself. In the secret counsels of his will, he's bringing glory to himself by this conundrum occurring. And when these points are, uh, are brought, this, this brings us uh, uh, to a place where directly out of the teachings, you see this, this come. And this leads to one of the most obvious questions. How can I trust a God whose own will forces me to sin and then punishes me for it? How can I trust a God who predestined rape and murder and starvation and genocide? How can I trust a God who has stated has a stated will in the Bible, but also has a secret will that no one knows in which he makes people defy him by his own decree? But undaunted, listen to Reformed theologian Arthur Pink's adamant statement is so straightforward. I want you to write it in. Look at the blanks. Write it in. We're getting close to the end. God only permits that which is according to his will. God only permits that which is according to his will. Thus, evil is as much a part of God's will as good. Let me say that again so you can read it now. God only, per only permits that which is according to his will. Thus, evil is as much a part of God's will as good. But in contrast to this theology... The whole story of the Bible is one of a totally trustworthy God trying to show his love and grace to sinful people who, despite his perfect faithfulness, are suspicious of his motives and we don't trust him. And here, here we come to an understanding of sin that you may not have really considered before. It's the fundamental, and this is, I'm not making anything up here, this is classical uh, uh, th uh, theology. The fundamental biblical understanding of sin, here's your blanks, at its essence, sin is the failure to trust God. At its essence, sin is the failure to trust God. The reason why you do the specific sin is because you don't believe that he's got the best out for you. And so notice, this is a, a perfect description of what happened at the fall. Adam and Eve trusted the serpent more than they trusted God. They trusted themselves more than they trusted God. So God created a place of perfection for them, but they still didn't trust him. They thought he was holding out, holding back some great thing from them, and they thought 
that they could create their own good apart from God. That they could launch on up on their own and improve on God's perfect creation, make it better for them, and God was holding out. So now let's return to our discussion about God. If the essence of sin is the failure to trust God, then it's incumbent upon God to be trustworthy. And here we find the logic of Reformed theology creates a major trust problem. Look at it. Here's your blanks. The very God who paid the price for me to be freed from sin, Romans 6, all, all kind, Romans 8, all over the text. The, the very God who paid the price for me to be freed from sin and calls me to live above sin is the same God who has planned in advance every sin that I will ever commit. Let me read that now straight through. The very God who paid the price for me to be freed from sin and calls me to live above sin is the same God who has planned in advance every sin that I will ever commit. And this lack of understanding God's good intent for us shows up in many ways. For instance, have you ever been talking to someone who's lost a loved one and then they say, well, I guess it was God's will. Think about that. Is God the cause of death? What does the word say? It speaks explicitly to this. Since by man came death. Sin caused death. The fall caused death. Human wickedness caused death. And God has been doing a cleanup job ever since. It's stunning that God gets the blame for death and pain and suffering. But what's astounding about Reformed theology is this is exactly what they teach explicitly. This whole mess is God's plan. Not just the beauty, but the ugliness as well. Not just the peace and joy and serenity and hope, but the war and pain and despair and hatred and suffering as well. All of this is, ready, God's perfect degree, decreed, all-encompassing will. But one of the most amazing things about human history is how much effort God has put into showing us that he can be trusted. With a God who's loving and kind, patient and holy, long-suffering, righteous and compassionate, why would we ever doubt his wonderful and loving intent toward us? So let me ask, wherever you are, wherever you are in your walk from God, with God, even if you don't know God, wherever you are, and no matter what challenges you're facing, do you really trust God? Or do you find yourself taking your life and your future and your own, into your own hands? Is your God really capable of dealing with the issues that you face? Or do you only really trust yourself? So here's the application. Write it in. God is so faithful that we can trust him even when others do us wrong. Listen to that again. God is so faithful that we can trust him even when others do us wrong. You probably know the beatitude from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Wait a second, how can that possibly be true? Blessed are those who have been persecuted 
for the sake of righteousness? Notice God is so faithful that we can trust him even when others do us wrong. This concept only makes sense to those who have come to a high level of maturity in Christ. So let me give just one example as we finish tonight. It's from Philippians chapter 1, and it's in your, it's in your notes uh, right there. Notice, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater purposes of the gospel. Ready? He explains his circumstances now. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Those are the guards who reported to Caesar. So almost for sure, Caesar was hearing the gospel via the guards when he asked, what's Paul telling you? The whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this, remember where he is, he's in prison, in this I rejoice, yes, and I will Rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. He's in the place that's the last place on earth that would have anything to do with hope. It should be despair in a Roman prison, but there it is. My expectation and hope, and I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Listen to verse 11 again. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What an incredible level of trust in God. Notice what Paul knew. God is so faithful that we can trust him even when others do us wrong. So as we finish tonight, let me ask, is your God as great as Paul's God? And now I'm talking to all of us regardless of our theological perspective. Our absolutely sovereign God, because both Calvin and Arminius taught our absolutely sovereign God, let me ask, is your God as great as Paul's God? Is he as faithful and powerful and trustworthy as Paul's God? Have you come to the point where you may even be suffering the pain of evil intent from others, and yet you're so confident in God that you have such complete trust in his love and in his power that you can rest in the fact that he's taking even those things that are done with the intent to hurt you He's taking those and turning for your good and that he will bring about his great purposes in your life because he is absolutely sovereign. Have you come to the point where it all doesn't have to be well for all to be well? Let me say that again. And I'm not 
preaching at you or teaching at you, trust me, I've been on my face about this because I'm asking these my question, questions myself tonight as well. Have you come to the point where all doesn't have to be well for all to be well? Can you sing in the depths of your spirit? It is well with my soul. Because remember, our God is so faithful that we can trust him even when others do us wrong. If you're in prison, do you find yourself so immensely grateful for his faithfulness that you can't help but sing songs of praise to him? Do you trust him so completely that you don't have to have good circumstances to have confidence that he's working all things together for good in your life, even when it looks like things are coming apart or when tragedy enters? What I know for sure is our God is trustworthy. Our God can be trusted. He and his ways are always right. He always has good plans for us. And he never stops interceding on our behalf, even when others do us wrong. So our role is to trust him and to seek him first and to seek the things of his kingdom, his way, his purposes, because our faithful God will take care of all of the contingencies in a disastrous world because our God is sovereign. Our God is faithful. Our God is trustworthy. And our God is able. Let's pray. Well, Lord, on a night where we did some pretty significant theology, some philosophy and lots of theology, I pray, Lord, that we won't just be sitting here considering, am I Arminian or am I Calvinist? Do I have this perspective? What's my rebuttal? Lord, may all of us fall before you in humility and hear your great message to us, which is, Dan, and you fill in your name, do you trust me? Do you trust me in everything? Because our God has shown that he is absolutely trustworthy. Our God is faithful. He is ever faithful. And even in the midst of a complicated, painful, suffering world, world our God, our God has good plans. Nothing can get around his authority. The enemy does not have control. God has given him some pieces of this world and he certainly does some things and very harmful things and so do the evil in the world. Lord, but you have never given away your sovereignty and we thank you that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So in trust, Lord, tonight, may we say our awesome God is all we care about. We love you, Lord. Amen.